Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. Thanks, Bob, for teaching in my absence last week. It's always a challenge after a cold to sing through uh, the whole worship bit, uh, but praise the Lord. He, he is so awesome. We have such an awesome God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what a, what a just glorious thing it is to worship him together and to gather in his name. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 14, if you want to turn there, and let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your goodness to us all, that you are the glorious God who has become flesh, who went to the cross to purchase us, to make atonement for our sin, to give us new life, to give us a hope of eternal life with you in heaven, and, and to give us such purpose and joy in this life now. And thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for this opportunity to read your word together and pray that you would minister it to our hearts, that we would receive it, that we would trust you, that we would believe you and obey you, and we'd truly follow you, not just be uh, those who cheer you on, but those who, who are yours, that you are our father, we are your children, um, slaves by choice because of what you've done, because of the great love you've shown us. May we bring you honor and praise and be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So one quick thing, we are, everything is back on this week, so the women's Bible study and the uh, Tuesday night, the Friday night, those are all happening, so please come be a part of those. All right, so this week I was reminiscing a bit. Growing up, I had this pet dog named Max. He was Nikita Lab, he was very gentle, I remember, uh, playing our favorite game with him, my brother and sister, we called it Tumble Fun. So he was a pretty big bone dog and we would, uh, it, it basically involved him having a toy and us draping ourselves over him, trying to tackle him, but we couldn't because he was just too strong and he was so gentle and fun. And I remember once I was about six or seven and we were gonna go for a walk and my dad said, don't let him go. And he hands me the lead and you know, as a kid, you wrap it on your wrist, you're like, yeah, that's, that's on there. And so my dad goes in the house and right then a dog is walking across the street with his owners and Max decides he's going to go introduce himself. So he, he just goes right through the fence, takes me off my feet, and I become a human anchor wedged in the split rail fence just yelling for dad. <laughs> and uh, my dad hears me yelling, he comes out, he secures the beast and says, you know, good job, you held on. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, oh. I mean... It, my hand was hurting because I, I have a scar from it, actually. Um, but, uh, but it was like, I was really glad to have a dad to come and help me at that time because all I could do was hold on, and I couldn't hold on forever because he was bigger than me and stronger than me. And, you know, in our, in our lives, we find ourselves in these unexpected situations that can jerk us off our feet um, when we're powerless to save ourselves. And, and all we can do is hold on. And sometimes holding on is impossible. And how it, it was a novel thing. Like our dog was not the kind of dog you would let off the lead because catching him would take quite a lot of work. So it was like, don't let him go. You don't, he, he, he's a handful. Uh, and it's like, wouldn't it be nice to have a dog that you just call and it comes to you? That would be a novelty. That was something we just didn't have when I was a kid. We didn't really know how to train our, our dog. Um, but... How much better than that is to have a, a God, to have our Father who hears us, who is able to help us. 
Who, and the question isn't if God will hear us or if he will respond to us. The question is, will we come to him? Will we respond to his call? Will we be obedient to what he has said and trust him? Because he is the one worthy of being celebrated as our living hope. He is the one who has uh, conquered death, who has given us life and a hope. And we find such undying active love in our Savior. And what, what a joy it is to be kept safe by him. So we find ourselves in Genesis 14, picking up in the life of Abram. Lots of names here, and uh, I'm excited about this passage. It reads, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Kedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. We see in the ancient world the rise of these kings, there were alliances, conquest, and warfare. And there's four kings in the north, led by Cadillamer, king of Elam. He made war against five confederate kings in the south, so below the Dead Sea, as we'll see. And for 12 years, they had paid him tribute annually. And the 13th year, they decided, you know what? We're not paying anymore. And the 14th year brought a reckoning, and they rebelled against him. And so the kings of the south, they join together, and we see that this salt sea, we call it the Dead Sea, it's situated between Israel and Jordan, and it's the deepest hypersaline body of water found in the world. Some interesting statistics on it, that it's uh, nine times as salty as the ocean. I have floated in the Dead Sea, that one thing they tell you is you don't want to get this in your eyes, because it will burn you. Right, so, and you only want to be in it for a little while, and uh, it's 300 meters deep. It's 423 meters below sea level, so it's very low. Uh, ancient historians, they describe lumps of bitumen or asphalt that would be floating to the surface, and they would gather it and use it for industrial uses. And we see these geographic details in these historic events align with the world that we know. I'll show a map in a moment. But continuing in verse 5, in the 14th year, Kedileomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Imim in Shavith Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and attached all, attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwell and Hazazon Temar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Kedolaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. So I have a slide that shows how they descended um, south. So you see the numbers are growing. You have the kings in the north, they come down and they hit Ashtaroth Karnaim, Ham. They go along that uh, eastern side of the Jordan all the way down below the Dead Sea to the Valley of Siddim. 
and uh, we'll show that one more time later when we talk about what Abraham did. So it's a little, it's a little confusing with all those lines, but uh, in those days, might meant right. And if you were more powerful, if you could exact tribute, you would. And it was very helpful to have allies that could assist you, that you could call upon to go and, and uh, conquer other nations. And it's like, uh, anyone that's unwilling to pay you or to serve you by paying tribute, you would conquer and you would plunder everything. You'd take everything that they had, all their people, all their goods, and you'd bring them back to your land. And these alliances, they were formed to strengthen power and protect your interests. And I was reading King Solomon, what he said in Ecclesiastes 4.12. Uh, it says, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. We understand that when you braid um, materials together, it, it helps multiply strength and give abrasion assist, uh, resistance. And ancient ropes, they were made of fibers or hair, leather. Now, do you know what the strongest natural fiber is? It's just a question for you. Anyone? Silk. Oh, very good. Congratulations. Five times stronger than steel. It can hold 100 times its weight. It's very strong. Get it wet, though, it loses about 20% of its strength. So just a little factoid for you. Genesis 14, verse 10. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. The valley of Siddam, south of the Dead Sea, was the location of this battle between the nine kings. So these armies are gathering together. It's described as full of bitumen pits. And any hopes they had that Kedolaimer was not going to bother going all that way to plunder them or to attack them were dashed. Any hope that this difficult terrain would prove an advantage for them, that went because they were all routed. They were totally demolished by these four kings that came south. And it says the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. There were some who fell in the valley of Siddam and the rest, they ran to the mountains. It's like they ran to save their skins. They left all their possessions behind, which were taken. Verse 12 explains why this particular conflict of which there were many is important to us is because they took Lot, the nephew of Abram. It says that he dwelt in Sodom. And the last time we read a couple weeks back, uh, Abram said, where do you want to stay? Because the land is not, it's not, the resources are not enough to support us all. So you choose where you want to live and I'll go the opposite direction. And Lot looked to the well-watered plain of the Jordan and says, I am going to live there. He says, okay, you go there. And he pitched his tent towards Sodom. But here we see he is living in Sodom and now he's been swept up in Kedolaimer's net. He's taken captive. Now, 2 Peter 2.8, it describes Lot as a righteous man. He had genuine faith in God. It says that his righteous soul was vexed by the sin that he found 
in the city. And it's not explained to us why he went to Sodom, whether it was for convenience, for business, or an opportunity to bring the knowledge of the living God to these people who obviously did not know God. But Lot living in Sodom, it shows us that the things that we choose for ourselves, they can have an unknown downside. Maybe after departing from Abram, he's in this well-watered plain and he feels a bit like a target. You know, he's right in the middle of this well-watered area and all of his flocks and herds are right there. He feels like there's no protection, no defense. And maybe he preferred the security that walls and a king afforded him. Sure, there were taxes to pay, but he had the protection of the king. But that didn't prove to protect him when those kings fled. This circumstance really is, it's not an indictment against Lot. It's an opportunity that God would use to bless and restore. So we read of one who escaped the battle, possibly a servant of Lot. We're not told, but told Abram the Hebrew about the fall of Lot and Lot being taken captive. And this is the first mention of the word Hebrew that we see in the Bible. It means to having, it means passed over to come from beyond. And it's likely he was called that, Abram the Hebrew, because he was seen as a clan leader. He was a very powerful and influential man. But also he passed over the Euphrates to enter Canaan. And the name is very fitting for those who came out of Egypt, right? Because they passed over the Red Sea. They passed through it. They passed over the Jordan to go into the land of promise. The word also has the meaning of passenger. And I like that. It's like they were passengers following God. They were, they were led by him, empowered by him to the place where he wanted them to go. God had directed Abram to go to, to Canaan. And it's like he was a passenger on the ride of his life with faith in God, choosing to follow him. And after his separation from Lot, we're told that Abram, he too formed an alliance with Mamre the Amorite and his two brothers, Eshcol and Aner. And I love that he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Here's Abram, the man to whom God has given all this land, and he's living by some other guy's trees. They're not even his trees. He's staying by the trees of Mamre, and he's the kind of man you want to be, have around. He's a godly man, quality character, honorable. Mamre trusted him, was pleased with his country, company, and it's like he didn't take the well-watered plain for himself. He didn't even take Mamre's terebinth trees. He was pleased to dwell there in the land that God gave him. As he dwelt in a tent looking for a city whose foundations and builder is God. Like Paul in the New Testament, he learned to be content regardless of his circumstances. It's like he was content living by Mamre's terebinth trees. He wasn't interested in building monuments to himself. He was the man who was building altars to worship the living God. His wealth, it didn't lead him to be arrogant or proud or he was boasting like, like all this is mine, you know, God gave this to me. No, he's living by Mamre's trees. It just really struck me. It's like he's not wishing he was in Haran or in Egypt or in Ur. He's not looking back to how things could have been. He is content in God right where God has him. And suddenly he receives terrible news. His nephew Lot has been taken captive by these kings and taken from his land. And due to his God, Abram was better equipped to deal with the problem than five other kings. And let that sink in. 
Genesis 14, 14. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods. And also he brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Now, this is pretty remarkable, right? Abram hears about it. He takes his 318 armed servants who were raised in his house. It shows that he was a man of vast means, right? To have 318 people born in your house that you could equip for battle. And these are likely just the men that he had previously trained and armed. And as you read further, we'll see that those three men, Mamre, Aner, and Eshcol, accompanied and assisted him. And so he goes from Mamre all the way to Dan and Hobah. So here's the slide again of how far Abram went to rescue Lot. Hmm. So the battle happens here. He's up Hebron, Mamre area, and he travels all the way up, all the way to Dan and Hobah with his 318 and defeats the four kings that just defeated five kings and takes all their stuff, all of it, and brings it back. And we'll see that he'll, he'll come back and he will end up uh, in Jerusalem. So all the way up to Hobah and then nine Bert comes down to here where that's going to be the next thing that happens. So it says he, I mean, 270 Ks, that, that is remarkable that he would go all that distance to recover his nephew and his stuff. It says that he divided his, his men by night. He shows some tactical st- skill and and there's a, I just wanted to show you something from Israel that is in Dan, uh, in the archaeological park there. So if you could show the slide from the Canaanite arch. Um, this is a place I visited on a couple of occasions. And it was unearthed in 1979. Right here. So it was starting to degrade, and so they filled in the arch. But this is a, an arch that they believe that Abram would have walked through, or people in that, it's from that time period where it was the entrance to the city in Dan. And so it's a pretty remarkable find that this is the oldest mud brick structure of its kind in the world, and it's located in Dan. And so if you could show the next slide, there's this little memorial plaque that uh, shows the verse of him going as far as Dan. So it's a little artistic representation of how it may have looked. I don't know that it looked precisely like that, but he walked up those steps and said, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he went to Dan. And then the final one, that's right, there's one more, that only about 250 meters away from this site is Tel Dan. So this is where um, Jeroboam set up an altar to uh, those calves. Remember when the northern uh, Israel was in idolatry? This was the area that they had set up for that, the ruins that they reconstructed to show you where it was located. So pretty remarkable. That was about a thousand years later. 
in the Northern Kingdom. Now, it's, what's interesting about this, like if you're thinking about a battle, there's really no battle. It doesn't really talk about a struggle. It doesn't talk about losses. It doesn't talk about anything that happened except that he, he went and recovered all. No losses, no injuries, no difficulties. And we don't know, but it doesn't say anything. They recovered Lot and his goods. And they brought back other people who had been taking during Kedolamer's raid, an incredible, miraculous victory that rivals when God brought the waters of the Red Sea upon the Egyptian army that pursued them, or when Barak and Deborah defeated Sisera by the power of God, Gideon's overthrow of the Midianites with his 300 men, when Jonathan and his armor bearer took out that encampment, that garrison of the Philistines, or David defeating Goliath, like this should be right up there with those miraculous victories that God has given his people because they trusted in him, not because they were strong or mighty or clever, but because God is the God that fights his people's battles. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, 45 through 47, we read that God does fight for his people. He does deliver and he saves them. He has gone to incredible lengths to save us from our sins, from the judgment we deserve. Now, David, you know the story about David and Goliath, likely that Goliath was a Philistine that uh, cursed God and the armies of the living God. And David hears of this, though he's a youth, and he decides, he, he says, God's helped me until now, and God will deliver him into my hand. And so there's this kitted out Philistine giant who's saying, take me on, Israelites, bring out your best man. And David approaches him with a, sh a shepherd's staff and a sling with a stone. And this is what he says to him. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. David's armed with a sling and stone. It was his faith in God that gave him the victory that day. It gave him the courage to fight when everyone else fled. Everyone's hiding and running from the battle and he volunteers to fight the battle because he knows the Lord is with him that the Lord will help him, that the Lord will deliver him into his hand. And the point that he makes here in this triumph over this champion armed to the teeth is that there is a God in Israel and your death. And when I behead you, everyone will know that it's God who gave me the victory. That's the whole point. There is a God. He's my God and your idols are worthless. They are nothing. The battle was the Lord's and Abram's action by faith in God. That was a trail that David followed of trusting God. 
So Abram, he's strengthened to travel that great distance. He defeats kings and nations greater than he because of the God he served. I mean, 318 trained servants. What can they do against nations? But he defeated them because it was God. So it wasn't his trained servants, his weaponry, his tactics, or Mamre and his brothers that turned the tide. It was God. The battle is the Lord's. And Abram was successful, not because God was on his side, but because he was on God's side. By faith in him. He's walking in love towards Lot. You see the difference between the two? It's like we want God to be with us and do what we want him to do. But when we are choosing to obey God and do what he wants to do, he will accomplish it. He will do it. He will see it done. And his will is not that any would perish, but all come to repentance. And so he sent his son so we could live, so we could repent and be redeemed. And I love David. He's, he's so prophetic when he says, the Lord does not save with sword and spear. Because God would provide eternal salvation with the blood of his own son. He saves through faith in him. By faith in Christ, we are saved forever. And as we share that gospel with others and we walk in light, the battle is the Lord's. He will deliver us. He will help us and save us. And God, he, he effortlessly plunders Satan and souls by his grace. Picking up in Genesis 14, verse 18. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Cadolaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. After Abram defeated Cadillamer and the three kings with him, he's met by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, Melchizedek. In this valley of Sheva, it's also called the king's dale, right outside the gates of uh, Jerusalem, the old city. Likely the same place that's mentioned in 2 Samuel 18, 18, where Solomon, I mean Absalom, reared up a pillar for his memorial. So the Kidron Valley area, right outside the old city of Jerusalem. Bera, king of Sodom, he previously had fled for his life, right? He ran for the hills when it was, uh, when danger came. And he goes to meet Abram and he's met by Melchizedek. And he holds this really unique position of being king and also high priest. We see under law that you were not to be a king if you were of the priestly line, because that was of the line of Aaron. And you weren't to do the duties of a priest if you were the king, because that would be of the king of the line of Judah after David. The king of Sodom, it says he ruled an exceedingly wicked people. Melchizedek, he was king and priest of God most high, the same God that Abram worshiped, the same one that he served. And he's greeted by Melchizedek who comes out bringing bread and wine. It's like celebratory feasting. And he blessed Abram of God most high, even as God promised to bless him in Genesis 12. And he also blessed God most high for delivering his enemies into his hand. And I love this. It's a small word, but it's so huge. It's like, blessed be Abram of God most high. 
of God, connected with him, like he's come from him. Blessed be Abram of God most high and blessed be God. And that was through faith in God. He is of God. The disciples of Jesus, they professed in John 6, 69, belief that he was the son of the living God. And Paul wrote this of born again believers in Romans 8, 16 and 17. It says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. How awesome to be children of God, most high. We, can, we are of God because we are in Christ by faith in him. Awesome. Why don't we turn to Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1, to read a little bit more about Melchizedek because we really don't read anything else about him in this passage. And he's a very important figure. Now, the context of the Hebrews passage is showing that the priesthood of Melchizedek is a greater priesthood than that of Aaron. That's, that's the basis for this um, point he's making here. Hebrews 7 verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. If there was any doubt about Abra Abram's victory, we'll still call him Abram because God hasn't changed his name yet in Genesis. But it says he returned from the slaughter of the kings. So we know he had a stunning, complete victory where he, those kings were killed by Abram and his men. And we find the name Melchizedek defined as king of righteousness and king of Salem is king of peace, right? So he's righteous, king of peace. And the writer of Hebrews observes that like, hey, everyone else in Genesis, we know about where they came from. We know they begat who and who came after who and like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like they, there's a line, but Melchizedek, we are not given his, anything about his background. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know where he hailed from. We just, this is, he just appears as king and priest of the most high God. No genealogy, no beginning of days or end of days. He's likened to the son of God. And for this reason, some people have said he could be a pre-incarnate Christ, a theophany. But again, the context of the Hebrews passage is showing us the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of Aaron, that Melchizedek is greater than Aaron. And uh, it's written concerning the Messiah in Psalm 110.4, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So it's showing the greatness of the man to whom Abram gave this tithe, that he gave uh, a tithe of all from the spoils of war. He blessed Abram and blessed God most high. The greatness of God is seen in Abram triumphing over his enemies, 
The greatness of Melchizedek is seen in Abram giving him a tithe of all. Now the word tithe, it means tenth. And you can just think GST, right? Goods and services tax. In Australia, we pay that on our everyday purchases. We don't have a choice. It's like, if you want that, you have to pay it. And uh, we're like, uh, I, I don't always want to pay that. I would like to pay less if possible, right? Uh, th- there's no faith required in, in paying GST. It's like you have to do it. But this heart of Abram, it's willingly giving a tithe of Melchizedek of all the spoils without being asked because he recognizes who he is, that he is the king and high priest of the most high God. And in recognition of the victory that he'd been given over his enemy. And he's a fitting recipient of these tithes, even as priests later received them from people under the, the uh, law of Moses. Now, again, we pay GST on goods because we have to. It's a price we're willing to pay. When it comes to tithes or giving to the Lord in support of a church or ministry or others for the honor of God, it's not because we don't give because we want more. We're giving out of what God has given us. He's given us himself. And so we respond in giving to him. It's like out of what God has graciously provided me, then I willingly give to him. I like what Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary. He says, Jesus Christ, our great Melchizedek, is to have homage done him and to be humbly acknowledged by every one of us as our king and priest. And not only the tithe of all, but all we have must be surrendered and given up to him. So really, Jesus has given his life for us, and so we give ourselves to him and everything that we have. Giving not grudgingly or out of necessity, but freely in faith knowing that God loves a cheerful giver. And so to be generous like Abram was, it's a good example for us to follow. See a very different uh, response by the king of Sodom from Melchizedek in verse 21. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Enner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Like you have Melchizedek, he's celebrating, he's blessing Abram, he's blessing the Lord. He's bringing him a gift of wine and bread the very things that we see used in the Last Supper, right? When Jesus uh, led his disciples in communion. And the king of Sodom is acting very much like a king, like he's someone in charge right now, right? He's giving this magnanimous offer where he he, he demands the return of his people. He says, give me my people, right? He, He demands it. And then he gives permission for Abram to take of the spoil, Really, a man who feels in charge, but he refuses. He refuses to take what's rightfully his. Um, And so he gave all the people and all the goods back to the king of Sodom. He says, I have raised my hand as a servant of the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. He would not be held hostage by political expediency or be beholden to him. 
for any reason, as if he owed him something, that it was because of the king of Sodom he was wealthy. He wanted everyone to know, my wealth is because God has given it to me. It's not because of my strength or my wisdom. It's God who has given me wealth and wealth beyond money, wealth of God himself, that you would have, that you would know him and be of him by faith. So he refused to owe the king of Sodom a thing. I love that. The Lord most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Like God owns everything. God, everything is his. And I've raised my hand to him. So I'm not laying a finger on your sandal straps, on your stuff. He says he raised his hand to the Lord. I, I looked through the, the, the scriptures about this phrase because it's not something we use very often. And almost every time it's God who says it in the Bible. Vast majority. And it's really, it's an anthropomorphic gesture of God, like making a claim, saying he's going to make, he's making a promise, but then taking action according to that promise. Like Exodus 20 verse five, it says, God lifted up his hand to the children of Israel to reveal himself to them. Right. And he revealed himself to them with signs, with those plagues, with delivering them from Egypt. God, it says, lifted up his hand to give the children of Israel the land of promise. And he brought them in. So there's always a corresponding action with God lifting up his hand. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And then he actually does something. He, it says he lifted up his hand to scatter them and that they would bear his iniquity. So he's saying, guys, I'm going to scatter you. And then he did it. He scattered them by their enemies. Abram, he lifted up his hand to serve God alone. And thus he gave all the people and goods back to the king of Sodom. He's like, save the food they've already eaten. And these men who helped me, they deserve their portion. So give them what's theirs. He wasn't going to give their stuff away, but he gave all that he took back. Abram didn't feel any loss because he had God, the possessor of all heaven and earth. You know, having all you need doesn't mean you're going to be satisfied with what you have. Right? You can have every need cared for, every need provided for, but it doesn't mean you'll be content with that because there's something in us that often wants more. All the friends, all the stuff, it does not provide rest for your soul. Cannot give that to you. And the reality is, even after we have raised our hands to the Lord, to commit ourselves to following him. We don't necessarily feel our, our burdens magically lifting or the troubles ceasing, right? Abram has this horrible news that his, his nephew's been taken captive. And we can feel like the ones we're doing all the work. We're taking all the risk. We're doing all the trusting. We're doing all the serving. And that our faith and our lives are hanging by a thread. And that all we can do is just hang on. But you know, God has us. He is keeping us. He is helping us. And it helps me to see that these feelings that we can have, we're not alone in this because Isaiah felt this way and it's even attributed to Christ. If you turn to Isaiah 49, verse one through four, and I encourage you later on to read through all of Isaiah 49 because it's such a great passage that points to our Messiah, Jesus that these feelings that we can have, they are overcome by faith in God, faith in the knowledge of God. When we feel overwhelmed, 
when we are beset by cares and worries, when we're wondering how we're going to pay our bills. Isaiah 49 verse 1 says, Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. It's like God called Isaiah to preach to the children of Israel and to speak God's word that they refused to listen to. They refused to obey God. They refused to put aside their idols. And he's like, I feel like I'm wasting my time. I'm, I'm putting out all this effort and no one's listening to me. And they would enter captivity for 70 years. But God would be faithful. God would not forget them. God would remember them and he would bring them out. That's how the passage continues. Though Israel had forsaken him, he would not forget them. He would not, uh, he, he would hold them close. And though the nation of Israel would not be gathered to Christ in faith, he would make them a light he would make himself a light to the Gentiles. Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles that we would come to him, to know him. And what seemed like an exercise in futility would result in salvation, not just comfort for a season, but eternal life by grace through faith in him. Just thinking, think of the great lengths that Abram went through to save his nephew and the great lengths God has gone through to save you and me, that he would send his only begotten son to make us brethren in Christ, to make us of God through faith in him. And he's not greedy for our stuff. He desires us. He desires that we would know him and that we would follow him and obey him, that we would trust him as God, the possessor of all heaven and earth. He is the true wealth and reward of the kingdom of God. He is it. He is God and there is no other. And when I was a kid at church, our pastor would often say, you know, if you want to receive Jesus Christ, if you want to commit to following him, to raise your hand. And that would be a sign that you, of your commitment, that you wanted to follow Christ and a signal of your desire. And, you know, more important than raising your hand in a church service in response to a sermon is living your life by faith in Jesus Christ after the service is over, in your daily decisions to choose to follow Christ, to choose to trust him because he is the God. He is our king. He is our righteousness and our peace and our reward is to trust him and to glorify him. And so having raised our hands, really having bowed our hearts before him as our Lord and Savior, let's bless him. Let's thank him. Let's, let's recognize him for who he is the one who's gone to all lengths to save us, to redeem and deliver us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your salvation. Thank you for uh, this example of Abram who lifted his hand to you and he would not be uh, fighting for his rights because he had faith 
in God, the possessor of heaven and earth, the most high. And thank you, Lord, that you are real, that your word is true, and that you show yourself strong on behalf of those who trust you. That it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that you fill us and you change us and you make us new, that we could be of God, that we can be content even to live by someone else's trees because you, we have everything we need in you, plus the satisfaction and the knowledge and the comfort of your kingdom and your presence. And I pray, Lord, that people, people would know you through our testimony, that they would see your love and grace through the way we conduct ourselves and that we would more and more be brought into a place of surrender. We'd surrender completely. We wouldn't try to surrender. We would surrender. We would give ourselves to you wholly because you are holy, because you are good and glorious, and we love you. Thank you again, Father, for this opportunity to speak forth your word, and I pray that it would be fruitful in our hearts and that we would be those who are committed to fully following and trusting you. In Jesus' name. Amen.